Hello, and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association buying group representing 3,700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Michelle Templin, the Senior Vice President of Product Management and Legislative Affairs at Manage Healthcare Associate. And we're going to talk about long-term care pharmacy and the challenges a long-term care pharmacy has in today's political environment. Michelle, you have a unique background, but before we get started today and talking about long-term care pharmacy, can you speak a bit about your professional background and how you began providing government affairs services for long-term care pharmacies? Yeah, absolutely. And first, I just want to say thank you, Anthony, for the invitation to come and and talk about long-term care pharmacy. It's been a passion of mine for many years, but I really do appreciate the opportunity. So I have been doing this for over 20 years, 21 years to be exact. I started in November of 2001. I started off with MHA in the sales department. And at that time, it was still a relatively small industry. But one thing that was absolutely certain was it's one of the highly regulated industries out there. And as our business grew, it became very apparent that we had to understand what was going on from a legislative, from a regulatory perspective. And for some reason, I don't know if you want to say I drew the short straw or I raised my hand, but it was something that I was very just personally interested in. I actually grew up right outside of Washington, D.C., so maybe it just came natural from that, but started working with a lot of our business partners and just working on these issues and trying to help our pharmacies understand exactly what they are, how it impacts their businesses currently, what they could see coming down the pipeline, and honestly, how they could also try to act to make changes, reach out to their federally and locally elected officials to try and let them know about the issues that impact them. So it kind of slowly evolved over years, but I'd say for the last six or seven years, I've actually run the legislative team at MHA, and I'm very proud to be doing that and to be representing the long-term care industry. Michelle, I recently attended the Managed Healthcare Associates Government Affairs Conference, and I saw you in action, and I thought you did an incredible job explaining the challenges that long-term care pharmacy or LTC has today and what MHA is doing in Washington, D.C. to try to change some of the laws that are impacting LTC pharmacy. But before we get into some of the weeds on that, you explain some of the listeners who might not be familiar with what a long-term care pharmacy is. What is a long-term care pharmacy and what kind of services do they provide? Great question. Long-term care pharmacies are generally speaking what we call closed-door pharmacies, meaning they don't have a retail front. They are closed-door to the public, and they service pretty much any type of senior living facility out there. It could be a skilled nursing facility, ECRCs, independent living. They're all across the United States. They vary in different definitions. But the thing that is consistent around them is that these residents of these facilities have a heightened need for pharmaceutical services. They generally have eight to 10, sometimes even more than that, prescriptions. They have multiple comorbidities and chronic conditions that really need to be managed, not just by the medical team, but by the pharmacy team also. So they are definitely, if you want to look at the most vulnerable and chronically ill that's out there, that's who they are. And generally, a lot of them, as you can imagine, are seniors that are out there in the world. But there's also a lot of other frail populations and vulnerable populations, such as mental health, 
things like that that are also grouped in long-term care and serviced by long-term care pharmacies. It sounds to me like long-term care pharmacy isn't something that your average person would encounter until a relative or a close friend or a spouse is really in need of that type of care. Yeah, absolutely. The first time I encountered it, quite honestly, was when my grandmother was in a nursing home. I think that's probably something that resonates with most of us. When you go in there, you actually see the heightened level of care that is being offered. And that goes along with the pharmaceutical side of it, too. It's very complex, these drug regimens that these people are on. And we've got some really great dedicated pharmacists that are out there working as part of the care team to take care of, like I said, some of these most vulnerable people that are out there. But most people encounter it first and foremost through probably a relative, most likely an elderly grandparent or parent. And that's sort, at least it was for me. I've encountered some of the same in my life. I've had relatives who needed to enter a long-term care facility. I've seen how the nurses and the pharmacists interact with the patients. They do an incredible job in some very difficult circumstances. But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that there are a lot of legislative challenges for LTC long-term care pharmacies. And one of the things that I learned by attending the MHA conference was that there's an issue with how LTC pharmacies are defined in the law and that there really isn't a difference between, in the definition of the law, how a retail pharmacy and a long-term care pharmacy are defined. Could you explain to us a bit about what is the issue and why that definition is so important? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of other businesses, being undefined has a lot of challenges, particularly when you're dealing with CMS, HHS, and any kind of a government entity. And the need for this definition actually had its genesis quite a few years ago when there was conflict between the different agencies. So FDA would issue a rule or a regulation, CMS would issue a rule or a regulation, DEA would issue a rule or regulation about anything, maybe how a, a certain controlled substance had to be handled. And they would make all these terms and say what need to be done like this, but the way long-term care pharmacies are, because again, they are servicing these very high vulnerable patients inside of a nursing home, they do specialized packaging, they're obligated to do drug regimen reviews in a nursing home every 30 days. It didn't fit the mold. It wasn't part of the regular operation. So every time we'd go to them and try to explain, okay, I understand why you made this policy, it doesn't fit the mold, they would say, but I have no definition to go back on to delineate between the two. So the genesis of this in us introducing this legislation was really around defining it so we could have clarity. So we could actually knew and we could consistently refer to one agreed upon definition of who the pharmacy is, the services they provide, and the patient population that they serve. And it doesn't exist today. It seems very odd, but it truly doesn't, and it causes a lot of confusion. Could you explain to us how the legislative process works in Congress? Because now we have a bill in that will define a long-term care pharmacy. What goes into trying to get, I mean, it's like the old cartoon, how a bill becomes a law. I'm probably not even saying that right, but there's that old cartoon from the <laughs> 80s. But how does a bill become a law? What, what goes into it? Schoolhouse, Schoolhouse Rock, Rock, the bill on Capitol Hill, one of my favorites. I'm probably dating myself with that, but that's okay. So for example, I'll use the bill, which was actually really kind of championed by the Senior Care Pharmacy Coalition, is really the group that is spearheading this. They have the bill introduced, it's S-1574 in the Senate, and they get introduced once from the House, and you have a companion bill that's introduced in the Senate. 
they will go to their various different committees that have committees of jurisdiction. So the committees that oversee Medicare and Medicaid issues that are what this bill is about. And then they will then put it forward. Once it gets through the committee, it'll be put to the floor to pass. You have to have two bills that match up on each side. If they don't completely match up, they go to reconciliation. I'm oversimplifying this process, by the way. <laughs> it's much more complex than that. But once they get an agreed upon final bill and it's passed by both sides of Congress, then it goes to the president for signature. As we have all experienced over the last few years, getting people to agree, not just within the Senate, but within the House, and then having those bills match up and agree is a very difficult process, which is why very few bills actually make it through. So the fact that we've had such support for this bill is really, I think, A, a great testament to the work that's been done by a lot of groups being spearheaded by SDPC, but it's really great with what's happening and the momentum that it has right now. When I attended the MHA Legislative Conference, I got a really great experience. We went and met with various senators, congressional representatives, spoke to them about the LTC definition bill, explained to them the importance of why it needs to be passed into law. But for those who weren't able to attend the MHA conference, what would you recommend they do? They're listening and they're saying, you know what, I'm being impacted by some of the same issues that Michelle is talking about. I want to try to help get this bill passed. How can they get involved? There's a couple ways. One, you could either go to the mhaadvocate.com website. We have on there where you can type in your address and it'll automatically cook you up with your two senators and your representative, and you can let them know that you're in support of this piece of legislation. That's also available on SDPC's website too. That's the most important thing. But the other thing that we highly, highly recommend is that you reach out to the people that work in the district where you are, that are the representatives back home, if you will, of those people in Congress. Open up your pharmacy to a tour, even if you're not a long-term care pharmacy. A lot of times people don't really understand just how much work, great work that pharmacists do every single day as part of the healthcare system that we have. Let them know that this is important, not just for yourself and your industry that you represent, but really important for all the patients that you service. So by getting your voice out there, letting them know that you're an advocate for this and starting to educate them on the professional services that pharmacists deliver is really all that we could ask for and really start that momentum going and get people talking about it. Michelle, could you tell us about some other issues that LTC pharmacies are experiencing and what type of work is being done on those issues in D.C.? Sure. And first and foremost, I'm going to talk about a big one, which is not just unique to long-term care pharmacies, it's pharmacists as a provider. And a lot of times I never, ever get shocked by how many people don't actually realize that within our healthcare system today, a pharmacist is actually not considered a provider. And that's important for a lot of reasons, most namely the economic model that goes around how they get reimbursed for the professional services that they deliver. They do a lot of great things out there. They consult. They save a lot of lives with drug-to-drug interactions. They provide a lot of vaccines, things like that. But yet they're in our system today, not considered a provider. So that is one thing across the board. I don't care what kind of a pharmacist you may be. We are big supporters of that and really try to make sure that everybody recognizes the important role that pharmacists play in that. Other things specific to long-term care pharmacies outside of the definition bill are some of the things that are going on with the PBMs, which are, I know every pharmacist, every time you say that, their eyes roll like, oh yes, we are not isolated from that in long-term care. And in fact, some instances, one could even argue they're impacting us more than others. There's also things where we're trying to really have the federal government recognize the enhanced services that the long-term care pharmacy does. 
They are actually, from a regulatory perspective, required to do drug regimen reviews in the nursing home every 30 days, and they do do that. But yet again, because they're not providers, they're not necessarily paid for that, or they're incompensated for their services. So we really feel that there needs to be a recognition for the heightened level of services that they provide, just as a cardiologist is recognized for the heightened level of services that he or she may provide on the medical side. So those are some of the biggest things that we're really advocates for right now is having people realize the role that the pharmacist plays. And if I may, I think one of the things, and I'm not going to try to talk too much about COVID, but I think one of the silver linings that came from COVID was people are now starting to realize the important role that pharmacists did play during the pandemic, whether it was the initial vaccinations that were given in the nursing homes and the rollout of that federal program, or whether that's still what the work that they're doing today. I think it's the one thing, again, the silver lining of all of that was people are really starting to listen. And when I say people, I mean members on the Hill and their staff, they're starting to listen and they're starting to understand how important they were during the height of the pandemic. And we're trying to take advantage of that as much as we can and make sure that they don't forget. So long-term care pharmacies and pharmacists in general, they're providing healthcare services to patients. And in this case, LTC provides services to some of the most vulnerable patients out there. But from what you're saying, this is really incredible. They're not recognized as healthcare providers. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? It's as simple as that. They are not recognized as healthcare providers. And if you look in nursing homes, obviously they have medical directors and directors of nursing and other recognized healthcare providers. But when you get to some of these other alternate sites, whether it's assisted living, independent care centers, they don't necessarily have all of that. And the pharmacist plays a huge role in a lot of that in making sure the medications are put there on a timely manner, that the med pass, which is where if you think about it, these people have minimum six to eight prescriptions. They're given at the right time of day. They're making sure that the resident is taking them and not spitting the meds out, or if it's an injection that the injection is happening, they're the ones who's actually providing all of that, as well as the clinical aspect of it, when they do the reviews and looking at all the different scripts that are dispensed and looking for drug-to-drug interactions and anything else that they may deem as clinically significant or clinically relative. So they're doing all of that, but yes, they are not recognized as providers. And it's something that when I first entered this industry years ago, I never really quite understood. Prior to MHA, I worked for a pharmaceutical company, and I never really even then understood why pharmacists weren't a provider. But it's something that, again, like I said, I'm hoping we can leverage the pandemic and the extra exposure that the pharmacists have gotten, positive exposure, to really help people understand they are a vital role. And they also, if you think about it, they're in pretty much every part of the United States. You may not have a hospital in every county, or you may not have a primary care physician in every county, but there's generally speaking pharmacists pretty much across the board that are there that have filled in the gaps. So we are going to continue to advocate on that issue. It's not unique just to long-term care, but we feel it's really important for the long-term sustainability of the American healthcare system. Michelle, it's really interesting. Pharmacists are not considered medical providers currently under the law, but from what you're saying, 
there's action being taken now in Congress to try to rectify that. Is there a bill moving through Congress right now that would change that? Yeah, there is a bill. It's known just generally as the pharmacist as a provider bill. Again, not to get too much into the weeds on how our system works, but there is this thing called the CBO that quote unquote scores every bill. And Mm -hmm. effectively what they do is they come in and say, we think this bill is going to cost the government X amount of money and or save the government X amount of money. And generally speaking, bills that cost don't pass. Ones that save have a chance of passing. Recognizing the pharmacist as a provider would change the economic model obviously should change it because of the services that they provide, but it does change it in the positive nature, meaning it would cost. And that has been our biggest stumbling point. One of the things that we're trying to work with a lot of the trade associations that represent various pharmacy groups is saying, you may be paying more over here, but the cost savings that you get from reduced hospital readmissions, better outcomes, all of those things far more than offsets it, That is a tough nut to crack to kind of do a very large scale report around that. But we're trying to chip away at that elephant one bite at a time because we truly honestly believe, yes, you may be paying a little bit more over here, but you're more than reaping the downstream benefits, whether it's savings in hospital readmissions, overall outcomes, and just better patient experiences. Just to switch gears a little bit, you mentioned COVID-19, and we've all seen how pharmacies in general were impacted by COVID-19, working much longer hours, doing vaccinations, doing testing. How was long-term care pharmacy impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, if you recall, really the first outbreak was in a nursing home up in Washington State. And just because of the nature of the way that nursing homes are, it had a huge effect throughout the country. You know, pharmacists were the first ones when the government came out with the Operation Work Speed. If you guys remember, that's what the official name of when it first came out. It was really geared towards A, medical professionals to get themselves vaccinated for whenever they treated people. And next in the line were long-term care residents. And the pharmacies were actually the ones that were tapped on the shoulder to provide the vaccinations. And I'm very happy and very proud to say that MHA was part of that. There were three groups that were tapped on the shoulder by HHS. It was CVS, it was Walgreens, and it was MHA. And we worked with them hand in hand. CVS and Walgreens each own subdivisions that are long-term care pharmacies. And we were able to do significant work throughout the nation, get pretty much every corner of the country, whether that be way north Alaska, through Hawaii, through some of the Rockies and places, we were able to really get the pharmacists out there. The dedication that these people had, sometimes driving two, three hours so they could do a clinic in a remote part of Oregon to make sure that the people in the facility, it really was a unique time that I don't think I will ever forget. And I'm very proud of the profession for what they did and what they were able to accomplish at a time when we really needed it. You know, most of us, we just watch on television what happens in Washington, D.C., and we hear what's happening on the news, but you're there. You're right on the ground. COVID-19 really changed the perspective in a lot of legislators' minds as to what a pharmacist and a pharmacy can do. Could you give us a sense of how you saw the perception of pharmacists and pharmacies change as the COVID-19 pandemic went on with the congressional representatives? Yeah, and I wouldn't limit just to the congressional representatives. I'll also say the White House, whether that was at the end of the Trump administration and the Biden administration, whenever they came in, 
one of the things that was something I've never experienced before was the access that was granted for us to talk to them. Like I said, we were fortunate enough to be part of the original three that were part of Operation Warp Speed when it first rolled out. But us talking with the task force, providing information, talking with CMS about their reimbursement policies, showing them data on how the initial numbers that came out were not significant enough to cover the cost of what the pharmacies were experiencing. Seeing over time them gently rolling that up to a level that was way more acceptable, having them come to us, ask questions about boosters and other things like that once the time came, that part was, for me, the first time I've ever seen that. Pharmacy, I think, tends to sometimes not always be at the forefront of everybody's mind, but because that's where the vaccines were rolling through, it gave us unprecedented access, which we continue to try to leverage to our advantage today to say, hey, you asked us when you needed us to call on you as part of a pandemic, we did it, we did it well. And so now we need you to continue that recognition of the role that we play in the healthcare system. So that was, I think, the biggest change that I've seen is that for the first time, they actually stopped, listened, asked our opinions. And I do believe, like I said, in some of the things we accomplished stuff. And one of the biggest was just the changes in the reimbursement that eventually came along. One of the things that I learned and I found it really interesting when I attended the MHA conference was where retail pharmacy and LTC pharmacy kind of intersect in terms of the issues that they have. And a lot of the issues are common. And one of the big issues that was discussed was, and this is, of course, a mouthful, direct and indirect remuneration fees. Now, for the listeners out there, that's just a long-winded phrase of fees that pharmacies are charged when they dispense medications to patients. Michelle, could you explain to us how these fees within the Medicare program, how they impacted long-term care pharmacy? Well, first, I want to say I give you credit for saying the full word because we're lazy. (laughs) We just call them DIR fees. So I give you credit. Very well done, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) For long-term care pharmacies, these are really impacting the nursing homes, but there are some contracts where they are negotiated out from the PSAOs. They've been able to negotiate that out, but anything that's not skilled nursing, so anybody who's an assisted living facility, and what they do is effectively, and again, not to get too deep in the weeds on how the sausage is made, but effectively, these are fees that are clawed back by the PBMs post-sale, and we could be talking three, six, nine months post-sales for various different reasons, mainly things like, oh, you didn't meet certain benchmarks or you didn't meet certain metrics. And the reason why they are so bad, as a pharmacy owner and operator, it can effectively kill your profitability on any type of product that you dispense. And not really knowing the rules of engagement, you don't know how to play. So it's not only just bad business, It's really bad business in terms of these organizations. And in most pharmacies, yes, of course, you've got the CVSs of the world, but even CVSs are hit with this. And it's really difficult for any pharmacy business owner to try and understand how they're going to happen, why they're going to happen, and what the net impact is going to be to their pharmacy. Because again, not knowing the rules of engagement, you don't know, is it going to be $10 today or $10,000? And is it going to come three months from now, six months from now, or nine months from now? Now, there have been a few changes in so much as they're looking to move them more to point of sale, which is a better beast to handle. We at MHA still believe that DIR fees are just bad business and want to see them completely go away. 
But I know that a lot of our brethren in the pharmacy industry say, listen, if we're going to have them, at least let's have them up front so we know better how to manage it. And there is truth to that. So I like to see that there's advanced discussions around it. I think the PBMs themselves are under a lot of heat right now, not just around this topic. You've got the FTC looking at them for a lot of different reasons. So I'm glad to see the conversation happen and some more transparency come to the subject because there isn't exactly a lot of transparency on this right now. And what happens to those fees once they get clawed back and where they go and how they get reported back to not just Medicare, but to potentially the bottom line of either the PBM or the plan. Well, that's an important point that you brought up, Michelle, is that the problem with these fees has been we don't know what happens with them and how much of these fees are actually applied to reduce the cost of the drug for the patient. And we've seen different estimates from the federal government on that, but it goes right to the question of the cost of prescription drugs and this particular case in Medicare. And we've heard some talk about that, but could you tell us a little bit more about it? About how the DIR fees impact it? Yes. The DIR fees, if you listen to the PBMs, it helps lower the cost of the drug. By using this, they're not only able to lower the cost of the drug, they're also able to use those monies to lower the premiums for the Medicare Part D plan. And that has been their single largest argument as to why they should not go away. Now, as you mentioned, the math is fuzzy at best, or I like to say nebulous at best on how that all works out. There's estimates that are out there from CMS, from the PBM industry itself, and then there's other organizations that have done estimates. But that is effectively what they're saying. By having these, it's allowing them to subsidize other areas which actually benefit the end consumer by having lower cost drugs and lower premiums for the Medicare Part D program. So this particular rule, and Tell me if I'm correct about this. I believe it's going into effect in 2024. And when it does go into effect, what should long-term care pharmacies expect to see? Yes, I believe you're correct, 2024. The long-term care pharmacies, yes. I, I don't know if it's crystal clear yet exactly what they can expect. We know that it's going to be transferred to the point of sale. As I mentioned, this doesn't necessarily apply to every single transaction in long-term care. I can say from our PSAO, we don't generally speaking have DIR fees in nursing home patients. So what I would really advise every single pharmacy who practices long-term care is to understand what we call your payer mix. Understand how many are associated with assisted living facilities, how many of them are skilled nursing facilities, not just number of scripts, but dollar and revenue associated with it, and know where you may be required to do the extra added reporting and point of sale requirements that are part of the law or will be part of the law when it goes into effect. Are there any other issues that you'd like to just briefly mention that long-term care pharmacies should be on the lookout for as we look into 2023 and beyond? <laughs> yes, there are. I think one of the biggest things that we at MHA are really advocating for, again, is this overall general concept of pharmacies getting adequately reimbursed for the enhanced pharmaceutical services that they deliver. A long-term care pharmacy with the drug regimen reviews that they are required to do, which are quite complex, we are staunch supporters of that. And it should not be limited to where that resident is. So it should not be limited to the four walls of a nursing home. If you have a chronically complex 
resident or Medicare beneficiary that is in an assisted living facility, in an independent care, or even at home, if you are doing all of the work in the enhanced services and the specialized packaging and the delivery of the drug regimen review, we really want to put the focus on the clinical services and the clinical profile, as opposed to the way that the reimbursement system is set up right now. It's based upon where that resident is, which is kind of, if you think about it, a little weird and a little bit unfair. And if you look at a lot of the other trends that are going on in healthcare today, everything from shortening average length of stays, people wanting and asking for more at-home time, alternate payment models, wanting to have people be at home. We're okay with that, but the model is set up to make sure that we have the safety net of the pharmacies there, and they can't do it if there isn't an economic model that supports it. So that's a big thing that we are big advocates of is making the emphasis more around the professional services that are being delivered, more so than where they are being delivered and having a viable economic model that supports that to make sure that we can take of the Medicare beneficiaries as they should be taken care of. And as frustrating as it can be at times, we need to continue to focus on that and stay committed to making sure people don't forget about us. <laughs> That's all I can say. Don't forget about us and make sure that we tell our stories and more importantly, the stories of the residents that we service who sometimes can't speak for themselves. Michelle, you're doing an incredible job. And one of the things that I came away with from this conversation is that as the population in the United States keeps getting older and older, the value of the type of things that long-term care pharmacy provides, the services that they provide to the patients in long-term care gets more and more important because our population is constantly aging all the time. It's constantly getting older. So 20 years ago, maybe someone would be 65 years old and that would be as old as they would get. Now people are living well into their 80s. So the importance of what LTC is doing is constantly evolving, becoming more important. And I think having you there in Washington, D.C. is extremely invaluable. Thank you again for all your work. Well, thank you. And thank you for organizations like yours for coming out and supporting us. I feel like sometimes I may be preaching to the choir, but trying to make sure that people know that there are organizations out there that are supporting them and that hopefully they'll support us too. Well, thank you, Michelle. And thank you for joining me today. For more information to learn more about Michelle and Manage Healthcare Associates, go to mhainc.com. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the President and CEO, John Giampolo. It was produced and edited by Zach Stone. Music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you very much. Bye for now.